Yeah, thank you for that introduction. My name is Sam Parada. Yeah, I am a MDiv graduate from Midwestern Seminary. I'm also a PhD student. <laughs> also a PhD student at Midwestern as well. I grew up in, in Minnesota, West Central Minnesota. Uh, oh, really? Wow. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then I've lived in Fargo, North Dakota the last eight years before moving down to Kansas City about 10 months ago to start working on my PhD. I also serve as the doctoral fellow for Dr. Joe Allen. I think he was in here a couple weeks ago, right? Is that right? Yeah, so yeah, I work with Dr. Joe as well. That's been such a blessing. And I also work as an evangelist with an organization called Ambassadors for Christ International. And what we do with Ambassadors for Christ is we seek revival in the church, we do evangelism through the church, and we provide training for the church worldwide. So that's just a little bit of a snapshot of my life, but if you would, grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Romans. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be looking at the first seven verses of Paul's letter to the Romans. I'll read the text for us, then I'll pray and we can dive into it. Starting in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through, the, through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have given us something that we can trust and build our life on, that we can go to, Lord, for instruction, for training, so that we may be equipped for every good work, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would empower me this morning to preach your word faithfully and true. Lord, that you would open every one of our hearts this morning to your word, Lord, to be sanctified by it, Lord, for your word is truth. So, Lord, have your way with us this morning. Sanctify us. Lead us into your presence, Lord, and would you be glorified in everything this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, I want you to try to remember the last time that you got coffee with somebody or dinner with somebody that was a stranger to you for the first time, and you were getting to know them. And I guess in your mind, you're like, I'm probably the first stranger or the last stranger that you guys have met because I'm new to you guys. So think about, you know, if we were to have a conversation, what would be those things that you would want to ask me? What would be those things that you would want to tell me about yourself as an introduction, as a way of introduction? You know, you're probably thinking of those cliche, kind of stereotypical questions like, oh, well, who are you? Where are you from? Where did you grow up? What do you do for a living? What are your hobbies? You know, Dan and I were talking in the back before service, and all those questions got brought up. We even talked about hunting and elk hunting and deer hunting, because that's what we like to do. And so Paul here is, is writing to these Roman Christians, and he's introducing himself to them. And he's kind of answering these really typical questions that you would answer if you were meeting a stranger for the first time. Now let me just give you a little bit more background on the book itself since we're diving right into it. Paul is writing from the city of Corinth in Greece. It's about the year 57 and it's towards the end of his third missionary journey. 
So Paul has already done quite a bit of ministry. And he's writing to a group of Christians in Rome that he has never met before. They are indeed strangers to him. Usually when Paul writes a letter, he's writing to a church or people that he's met. You know, he planted the church, or at least he's visited this church and strengthened it. But he's, he's writing to a group of Christians that literally he has never met them before. He's never been to Rome, as far as we know, at this point. And the church in Rome is a mixture of Jews, Christian Jews, and Gentiles. Now, Paul writes for a couple of reasons that we can kind of deduce from this letter. First, he wants to probably alleviate some division and tension that's going on in the church. There's these Jewish Christians, and there's these Gentile Christians, and they're likely fighting and having some problems. And he's probably heard about these problems, and so he's, he's writing to remind them of the gospel that unites them together in Christ. He wants to alleviate these divisions. And so as you start to work through the book of Romans, you'll, you'll start to see this. He starts to address the Jews, and then he addresses the Gentiles, and then he arrest, addresses the Jews, and then the Gentiles. But he wants to show them that, hey, guess what, you guys? Both of you, Jews and Gentiles, are sinful and under the wrath of God in need of a Savior. And the only way that you can be saved is through faith in Christ. So you're both at the same spot. You're sinful, you need a Savior, and you need to come to Him by faith. So he reminds him of this throughout this letter. That's why we say that the book of Romans is this incredible treatment and treatise of gospel doctrine and gospel theology. Some say it's the first ever theology book because it reminds us and tells us of the theology of the gospel itself. It's, it's just rich with gospel truth. A second reason, though, why Paul is likely writing to the Romans, he's at the end of his third missionary journey, He's an apostle to the Gentiles, and he wants to bring the gospel to places that haven't heard it yet. And so at the end of the book, we actually see that he has aspirations to go to Spain to bring the gospel to those people there because they haven't yet heard of the gospel. And so he has his eyes set on Spain. He has his eyes and heart set on places that have not yet heard. And from this point on, the church of Antioch has been his sending church. If you just think of, in your mind, Jerusalem, Israel, and you just go straight north, you'll eventually hit Antioch. And that, that's been the church for his missionary journeys. It sends him out, and he'll go and do this little loop into Greece, down to Crete, and then he'll go back to Antioch, and then he'll do the loop again. But now, Antioch would just be kind of an infeasible like, church to send him out. It's so far away from Spain. Rome, however, though, would be the perfect spot to be sent out from. So he's kind of writing kind of like a, a support letter almost, telling the Roman Christians, this is who I am, this is the gospel that I preach, and starting to foster a relationship. So hopefully one day when he does get to Rome, it'll be a church that will be willing and eager to send him out as a missionary to Spain. So that's the second reason he's likely writing. Now, this is, again, an epistle. And epistles... Greek epistles, they follow the same structure, no matter what, whether it's a secular letter or a letter to a church. There's a prescript, opening remarks, usually just simply who's writing, who's it written to, the main body, think of an email, very logical, very linear, 
and then some closing remarks. And so Paul's letter to the Romans is, is that. It's an epistle. But usually the prescript, the opening statement, is, is rather short. It's usually just a sentence. It's usually, you know, Paul writing to whatever, you know, the Ephesians or something. But this prescript is seven verses long that we're going to be looking at. It's actually the longest introduction of any letter that we have record of, whether secular or Christian, during this period of time. Which, that obviously should stand out to us. Like, these seven verses right here are the longest opening statement of any letter that we have from that time. That should kind of make us think, well, why, Paul? Why did you spend so much time kind of doing introductory remarks? Well, I think... It might simply be the fact that, again, these Roman Christians are strangers to Paul. He's never met them yet. And so you would expect him to probably introduce himself a little bit more than he usually would. You think, too, like the pastor that you've had for the last year and a half, he's probably not introducing himself every time he comes up to preach on a Sunday. But if you have a guest preacher, you kind of expect me to say something about myself because you don't know me. So that's probably why Paul is spending so much time with introductory matters. And so we're now going to look at these verses in this introduction. So keep in mind again that original question, what, what, are, the, what are those things that you want to know about somebody when you meet them for the first time? And with that in mind, we're going to consider four elements of Paul's opening to, the, to his letter to the Romans. And I'm going to phrase these four elements as, as questions. First question is, who is Paul? Second, what is Paul's calling? Third, what is the purpose of Paul's calling? And four, to whom is Paul writing? So let's begin with question number one. Who is Paul? Who is Paul? So if you have your Bible open, look at the very beginning of verse one. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. We'll stop there. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, you can imagine that the very first thing that somebody says about themselves is likely pretty important, or at least the most foundational aspect to their identity, and then they build upon that foundation other things. So Paul, the very first thing he says is that he is a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, the translators of the ESV and most translations tend to soften this a bit, but this is the Greek word doulos, which literally means slave. This is the Greek word for slave. So Paul is saying, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. He literally identifies himself as a slave of Jesus. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but just think in your mind, when's the last time you introduced yourself that way to somebody? Hi, I'm Sam, a slave of Christ. Have you ever done that before? Like, that, that's, that's a little odd to us. Like, oof. And, you know, rightly so, we have a bit of a history in America of slavery that might make that maybe not the best introduction. But nonetheless, that's what Paul does. Now, we typically would say, hi, I'm saying I'm a Christian, or I'm a believer in Christ, or a follower of Christ, or sometimes a disciple, or maybe just a child of God. Like, those are all great introductory statements and identifiers. But Paul doesn't use any of them. He says, I'm a slave. So why? Why does he begin that way? Because he doesn't begin all of his letters that way. 
He usually just says an apostle. Why a slave? Well, I think part of it is the context. He's writing to the Romans. And in the Roman Empire during that time, there were a lot of slaves. Estimates of upwards of 20% of the Roman Empire population were, were slaves, were enslaved. And the closer you got to Italy and the closer you got to Rome, the higher the proportion of slaves there were. So he's writing to Christians in Rome. There's slaves everywhere in Rome. Likely, a big portion of the church in Rome were slaves. So he's writing to a people that know what he's talking about. They know what it means to be a slave. And he's identifying with them. And he's saying, I too am a slave of Christ. Indeed, we all are slaves of Christ. I'm a slave of Christ. You're a slave of Christ. So what does it mean then to be a slave? Well, think about it this way. I'm going to give you three Ps. I'm going to alliterate them so maybe you can remember. Well, first off, a slave entirely relies on his master for provision. Provision. Food, water, clothing, shelter. The slave is entirely dependent on his master for provision. Two, a slave is entirely dependent on his master for protection. Protection. A good master would protect his slave. Three, a slave is entirely dependent on his master for purpose. The master gives his slave a task, a purpose, a reason to live, some work to do. So when we think about that in relationship to Christ, Christ provides everything that we need. He provides us life itself. He protects us. He protects us. And He gives us a purpose and a calling and a reason and a meaning to life. And we could even add another P. It's a little bit more, uh, but property. We're actually owned by Christ. He owns us. Think about 1 Corinthians 6. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. What was the price? The blood of Christ. Christ purchased us with His very blood. He owns us. We are His. We belong to Him. And so Paul likely has all this in mind, and, and the Roman Christians would have understood this about slaves, and so he tells them, I'm a slave of Christ. They get this. They know what he's saying. I mean, Jesus himself even says that he's the master and we're the slaves. Think of Matthew 10, 24-25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant, slave, above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant, slave, like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of the household? So, even though we're all slaves of Christ, I think Paul is quick to call himself a slave because of the context of who he's writing to, but also another reason. I think because of his conversion experience as well. He had a very radical conversion experience. You know, you, you know the story, Acts 9, he's on the road to Damascus, and he's persecuting the church. He's going to go to Damascus and get permission to continue to persecute Christians and put them to death. And he's set in his way, hating God, hating the church. And then Christ shows up and saves him. And listen to what Jesus says to Ananias in Acts 9, 10 through 16. 
I want you to pay attention to the very end of this passage, but just listen. Starting in verse 10, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Verse 16, listen to this, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. What does Christ say? Christ says that Paul is his chosen instrument. Christ says that I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul, that's just a real, a really real experience of being, in a sense, enslaved by Christ. So I think that's another reason why he's quick to call himself and identify himself as a slave. Now it's important to realize, though, and balance this out a bit, we are children of God. I think Dr. Joe preached on the reality that God is our Father. So, yeah, we are children of the Father. We are co-heirs of the kingdom with Christ. We are brothers and sisters of Christ. Christ even calls us His friends. He calls His disciples His friends in the Gospel of John. Indeed, as the church, we are the bride of Christ. We are His spouse. And so all these things are true and each identifier it's important to realize and to hold on to and to remember for a reason. As children, we get great comfort knowing that we have a father. As friends, we know that we can approach Christ. But as slaves, it reminds us that we must be obedient. That we are called to be obedient to Him. Even though He's our friend, even though He's our brother, our Savior, co-heir, he still is our master, and we must obey him. That brings us to our second question. What is Paul's calling? Look again at verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. He says he's an apostle. Now, this word literally means sent out one. And so, in a sense, in a general sense, we all, as Christians, are generally sent out to preach the gospel to the nations. But most of the uses in the New Testament of apostle have a very technical sense, very technical meaning. It's a very specific group of men that Christ called and commissioned as apostles. They have a very unique calling and authority. Think about Matthew 10, very beginning of Matthew 10. You think of the 12 disciples and Jesus calls them to himself, starting in verse 1, and he called to him his twelve disciples. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Listen to this. The names of the twelve apostles are these. So we have a transition. He calls to himself his twelve disciples, and then he sends them out on a mini mission trip, and now they're called apostles because they're sent out. And these 12 become the 12 apostles, obviously minus Judas. Judas betrays Jesus. 
and he's replaced by Matthias in the beginning of Acts, Acts 1. But nonetheless, apostle is a very unique office. Only in the first century did we actually see people as apostles. The Twelve disciples, Matthias, and then Paul, and maybe a couple others. James, maybe the brother of Jesus, and some others might be considered apostles. But nonetheless, it's a very small group of guys. Paul is saying, I'm one of them. I'm an apostle, along with the original twelve. Which means I have apostolic authority. I can write the very words of God. I'm inspired by the Spirit to write Scripture. It means I have more miraculous giftings to heal, to cast out demons. Obviously, we know that Paul was on that island during the shipwreck, and he got bitten by a snake, and he, he was fine. Like There's some uniqueness to the apostolic office. Indeed, Paul says in Ephesians 2.20 that the apostles alongside the prophets serve as the foundation for the church. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So when Paul says to the Romans, called to be an apostle, that's what he means. This very unique office that serves as the foundation for the church. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.8 that he is one untimely born, late to the party, so to speak, the least of the apostles. Why? Because he persecuted the church before becoming an apostle, before even becoming a Christian. He persecuted the church, so he says, I am the least of them. But nonetheless, he still is an apostle. Galatians 2 tells us that Peter and James validated this a few years after Paul's calling. 14 years later, John the apostle also validated Paul's apostolic ministry. So we have no doubt, we, can have, we have no doubt that Paul indeed is an apostle of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. So that leads us to our third question. What is the purpose of Paul's calling? What is the purpose of Paul's calling? Well, he clarifies, look again, verse 1, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart for the gospel of God. Now, this flows from his identity as a slave. Christ captures, captures him and makes him his slave and gives him a purpose, a task. And this purpose is to bring the gospel to the nations. Specifically, we know that Paul is called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Later in Romans 1, verse 14, if you just look down, he even says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So he's called to be a preacher of the gospel. He's set apart for the gospel. And that's why this introduction is so significant because now he basically transitions into this amazing, almost like theological discourse of the gospel itself in his introductory remarks. It's so significant and amazing. Look at verses 2 through 6. So this gospel that he set apart for, to which he promised, Christ promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning a son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So he gives most of his introductory remarks to the gospel itself. Now let's just spend a few moments looking at this. 
What does he say? Well, first he says that the gospel was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning the Son. Though the Jews didn't have eyes to see it or ears to hear, their Old Testament Scriptures, their law, their prophets spoke of Christ. They promised this gospel in the Old Testament. It was there all along. That's why when Paul would go on his missionary journeys, he'd usually start at the synagogue and he would open up the Old Testament and he would start to show the Jews, hey, Christ is in here. Look, here he is. Obviously, the Jews in large measure reject this. But nonetheless, the gospel itself, the work of Christ on the cross, was in the Old Testament. He reminds me of Luke 24, one of my favorite passages in Scripture. If you have your Bible, you can just flip over there, but I'll read it for us. I think it's significant. This is after Jesus' resurrection on the road to Emmaus, starting in verse 13. Luke says, That very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That's significant. Jesus kept them from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some, of, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe what all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27, listen, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So, it was there, he was there all along. All along. He kept himself hidden from these disciples so that they could see him clearly in the text. Our experience of Christ today is through the scriptures. We see Christ, we experience Christ in the scriptures, even in the Old Testament scriptures. He's there. So that's what Paul's saying. He's saying this gospel that I'm called to proclaim it was promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. What an amazing thing. And this means that the gospel and the work of Christ was always the plan of God for all eternity. It wasn't the backup plan. Some people think they have this odd idea that the first plan, plan A, was that you know, Adam and Eve were going to live in the garden forever because they were never going to eat of the tree and it was just going to be perfect forever. And then all of a sudden they ate of it, and, they're like, and God's like, uh-oh, uh, now what? Well, uh, okay, I guess plan B. No, not at all. 
The gospel, Christ crucified, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, taking on the form of a man, living a perfect life, going to a cross, dying for our sins, being buried, raising three days later, ascending to the right hand of the Father. That was always God's eternal plan. Paul says in the beginning of Ephesians, it's the plan for the fullness of time. So that's why it's so clearly prophesied and promised in the Old Testament. It's always been the plan for all of time. Well, what else does Paul say about this gospel? Well, he says concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit um, in, in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So two things. One, descended from David according to the flesh. What is Paul saying? Well, he's saying that Jesus is the true Davidic heir, the promised one, the Messiah, the chosen one. Literally descended from David, the seed of David. Which means he's blood and flesh. He's, he's a man. He's truly man. He's fully man. He is a man. What else? Well, he's declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. What does this mean? That Jesus is also God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. He is the eternal Son, eternally begotten of the Father. He's true divinity, one in essence, one in will, with the Father and the Spirit. So what Paul says is this gospel promised beforehand concerning the Son, and this Son is God and man, fully God, fully man. And that's a central aspect to the gospel that we believe and we preach. If we preach a gospel where Christ is not fully man, and fully God, then we don't preach the gospel at all. We preach a false gospel. This gospel centered on a man who is man and God at the same time. Now, the phraseology here that Paul uses is a little bit interesting. It seems like he's saying that he becomes God at his resurrection, declared to be the Son of God at his resurrection. That's not what he's saying. It's, it's more of a validation. He's validated to be the Son of God, to be divine at His resurrection. He's been saying it all along. He is God. He's been God all along. And now at His resurrection, it's validated, confirmed indeed He is God. Now, look again at verse 5 with me. Paul kind of goes back now to his purpose and calling. He says, through whom, through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship. Grace and apostleship. We should probably take this as kind of one thing. The grace of apostleship. So his apostolic office is actually a gracious gift of God given to him that he does not deserve. So from Christ, he receives his apostolic office and apostolic calling. And what else does it say? Why was he given this apostolic office? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Three things here. Three things. We'll split it up into three questions. What is Paul doing? For whom is Paul doing it? And where is Paul doing it? Let's start with the first question. What is Paul doing? He's bringing about the obedience of faith. So the gospel, it saves us from God's wrath. We're sinners. We are guilty before God. We deserve to go to hell for eternity to pay the fines for our sin. 
And the gospel saves us because Christ took the guilt, took our sin on the cross, faced the wrath of the Father on that sin in our place. And before that, he lived a righteous life. And then we hear the gospel, and he gives us the gift of faith, and through faith, he gives us his righteous record. So we are now righteous in the eyes of the Father. But we're made righteous and we're saved for something. We're saved for good works. We're saved to be obedient. So that's what Paul is saying. This gospel, his work as an apostle, is to bring about the obedience of faith. To bring about the obedience of faith. Now he's not saying that we are saved or justified, made right in God's eyes through works or obedient merits. No, He's saying that obedience is the fruit of our salvation. I was doing evangelism at North Dakota State University about probably five or six years ago, and a Catholic missionary came up to me and wanted to have a discussion about Catholicism and Protestantism. And I'm like, absolutely, let's talk. So we, we ended up talking for three hours, but he went to this text in Romans, and he, he said, look, the obedience of faith. So that means that we merit the righteousness of Christ through our obedient works. And I'm like, no. No. Like, if you're just totally denying everything else Paul is saying in this book, he unpacks the reality that we are saved by faith alone and that we are given the righteousness of Christ that justifies us and that then leads to obedience, an obedient life. So, Paul saying, though, that an aspect of his ministry is to preach the gospel, and when the gospel affects people, it leads to an obedient life. Jesus says in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Even think of the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, teaching them to observe, or we could translate it as obey, all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So a part of our task as Christian is, Christians is to obviously make disciples, evangelize, but then teach Christians to obey all that Christ has commanded, the obedience of faith. So think about your own self. Are you one, are you one who pursues obedience? Or do you just kind of see the gospel as a get-out-of-jail-free get card? Like, okay, I'm saved, I'm good, I can keep living my life how I want to. That's not it. You're saved to be obedient, to have the fruit of obedience. So just examine your own heart, even right in this moment. Are you seeking to be obedient to Christ? Well, that brings us to this second question. To whom is Paul doing this for? This whole work, this whole calling as an apostle, who's he doing it for? Well, he says, for the sake of his name. For the sake of the name of Christ, he's doing this work. All of Paul's labor, labors, everything that he does is for the glory of God. Everything. And it's, that's the same for us today. Do you serve knowing that? Do you serve for the sake of his name and not your own? Do you serve so that you can get the praise of man and that your fellow Brothers and sisters in the Lord might see you and give you some praise. Are you like the religious hypocrites, the Pharisees who would give and tithe in public 
and make a bunch of rackets so that people would praise them for their big gifts? Are you like those who pray in public so people would give you praise and fast and, and you look you know, gross and so that people will give you praise because they see that you're fasting? Are you, are you like that? Are you seeking your own name? Or are you like Paul and everything that you do as a Christian is for his name, the name of Christ, the glory of Christ? We have to remember that, that everything we do is for him and him alone. He alone is worthy of all praise. Finally, and where is Paul doing this work? Well, he says, among all the nations. He's bringing about the obedience of faith for the sake of the name of Christ among all the nations. The gospel reclaims the nations. Think of the Tower of Babel in Genesis. There was one language, one people. They disobeyed God. He said to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. They didn't. And God then confuses the language, makes a bunch of languages, and makes all these nations. He chooses one nation as his people, Israel. He's going to use that nation, and he's going to use the descendant of Abraham, Christ, to bless the nations. Well, the gospel is how that is coming about. Think of Acts 2, think of Pentecost. The Spirit comes down, fills the disciples, and they start preaching the gospel in different languages to the people from all these different nations that have gathered there. And they're hearing the gospel message in their native tongue. And it's a, it's a reversal of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, God confused language and spread the nations out. At Pentecost, Christ is, is reclaiming the nations and everybody now understands the gospel in their native tongue. So, Paul understands this. It's the time now to, to go and reclaim the nations. Christ is, is going to bring them in. They're His. They're His possession. And we get to co-labor with Christ to be a part of that amazing work of reclaiming the nations. Paul understands this. That's why he wants to go to Spain. To keep bringing the gospel to further out places. Places that have not yet heard of Jesus Christ. And we have the same exact calling today to bring the gospel to the nations. Are you a people who know that? Are you a people who desire to bring the gospel to places that have not yet heard? Are you a people who are giving financially towards that type of work? Or maybe yourself, maybe going to go to a place that has not yet heard the gospel. We're still in the process of doing this work among the nations. So we have the same task today as Paul did 2,000 years ago. Finally, question number four of our first you know, original outline. To whom is Paul writing? And we'll close with this. Look at verses 6 and 7. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's a lot that we could talk about from these couple verses, but there's one thing that I want to hit on, and it's, this, it's these two instances of the word called. Called. There's a very technical meaning. Look again at the text. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Same word. And this is what we call the effectual call. And we compare that to what's called the general call. The general call is when we just 
preach the gospel to the world. I give out the general call. I preach the gospel and it goes out. Some may reject it. Some may come to Christ. The effectual call is those who are affected by it. And they're called to be Christ's. They're saved. They're born again. They're made alive. Just imagine John 10. Jesus says he's the true shepherd. And his sheep hear his voice and come into the sheepfold. Just imagine a pasture with all these different sheep in the pasture and they have their head down, heads down and they're eating and the shepherd comes and he, he calls out and some of the sheep lift their head and they see the shepherd and they come to him and they come into the sheepfold and the others, they just heard the general call. They were not affected by it. They remain in the pasture eating as though nothing happened. So Paul is saying, you are like those sheep who lifted up their heads and you came into the sheepfold. You were affected by the gospel. It saved you. You're called to belong to Christ. You're called to be saints. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you were affected by the gospel. You've heard the effectual call. And you're into the sheepfold right now. You are Christ. And that's an amazing thing. And if you're not a Christian here this morning... Well, you've heard the general call. The gospel has been in this sermon this whole time. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Repent and believe and trust in Him. Trust in Him. He will most certainly save you from your sins. Well, that brings us to the end of our text. Let's just remember, just like the Romans, we're slaves. We're slaves of Christ. We belong to Him. We rely on Him for provision, protection, purpose. He bought us with His very blood. Remember, like Paul himself, we have a very similar task and purpose. To preach the gospel to the nations. To bring about the obedience, the faith, for the glory of Christ. That is our calling even today. So, let us remember that. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for You for your grace to us. Lord, that you have provided a way that we might be reconciled to you. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your church. Lord, that we have brothers and sisters that we can labor alongside. Lord, that we can encourage every single day that we might not fall back into the deceitfulness of sin. Lord, I pray that you continue to encourage our hearts the rest of the day. That we would go out from this place, Lord, glorifying you having the gospel be quick on our tongue, Lord, quick to come off our tongue. Lord, that we would meditate on it every day and every night, Lord. Thank you for your salvation, Lord. Thank you for your word. I pray this in your name. Amen.